0: Revelation 21, verses 21 through 27. We're going to finish up chapter 21 and then get into a small section of chapter 22 tonight. And as I said, we will wrap up the study of Revelation next week. Revelation 21, verses 21 through 27. John says, "In the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the uh, twelve gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, I'm just going to start right off and tell you, we've had a a misconception over the years that when we get to the eternal state, we'll all pretty much be the same. Hasn't that kind of been what people kind of, how they talk in our churches? And if people even talk about heaven, they just have an assumption that when we get to heaven, everybody's going to be the same. And I want to show you scripturally, the Bible doesn't teach that. That actually there's going to be differences between us. In the eternal state. One of the things we can see from this passage very clearly is there's still going to be nations. Do you see here how the nations will walk in it? We see it twice. It says in verse uh, 24, by the, its light, that will the nations walk? And then also verse 26, they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations, into it the glory and the honor of the nations. I want you to understand that the different nationalities are for the glory of God. Actually, Paul says in Acts chapter 17, when he was talking to the Areopagus there on Mars Hill, he said, from one man, God made every nation of men. And so what I want to do is I want to just take you back through a couple of things we've already looked at in Revelation and show you a couple other places as well. And just show you that the nations and the differences between the nationalities is a part of God's design, has always been a part of God's design, and it brings glory to God. So go with me back to Revelation chapter 5. Just because God has a plan for the nation of Israel doesn't mean that He doesn't have a plan for all the other nations as well or for the individuals of those nations, if you will. We have a tendency when we get focused on the fact that God's not done with Israel and those of us who are trying to defend the fact that God is not done with Israel and the church hasn't replaced Israel, we have a tendency to be accused of being just so pro-Israel we hate everybody else. No, that's not it. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. In Revelation chapter 5, look at verses 8-10. through 10. And when he, Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation chapter 7, look at verses 9 through 12. Revelation chapter seven, starting in verse nine, after this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God. For forever and ever. Amen. So again, we see all these nations worshiping God. Go to Revelation 14. Look at verses 6 and 7. Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another uh, angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, and again, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 17. We've already seen in the book of Revelation, hopefully, clearly now, that God cares about and loves all the nations and the peoples of all the nations. In Genesis chapter 17, though, God said something to to Abram. Abram at the time, we know him as Abraham that maybe some people might not have ever really noticed. Because we know that in Genesis 12 when God calls Abram, He says, through you all the nations of the peoples of the world will be blessed. But look at what He says in chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly." Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Now, if you remember, he'd already been told you're going to be a mighty nation. He'd already been told you're going to be a mighty nation, singular. Now in chapter 17, he says you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. All right? And, And... Look at verse 5, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations as if for an everlasting covenant, to be you God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." So God's already told Abram, you're going to have a child and you're going to be a mighty nation. But then he comes later on and says, you're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. Well, how can he genetically be the father of a multitude of nations? Isaac. Isaac. Ishmael, as you know, is going to become many nations, but also through Christ. Remember, the book of Romans makes very, very clear that all who are Israel aren't Israel, but all those who come by faith. Isaac was the child of the promise, and he believed God, and God gave him righteousness because he believed God. And those of us, as we've seen in the book of Revelation, who have trusted in Christ, who aren't Jewish, have been what? Grafted in. And we, our father is Abraham as well, because of, of faith, and we are the children of God. That's why it's so easy to build the doctrine of replacement theology and how the church has replaced Israel, because there's so much scriptural evidence of the fact that those who uh, who trust in God are considered a part of Israel. But that doesn't mean God's done with Israel. I was listening to a man on the radio today, and he said he used to be one of these omnipotent and replacement theology people. But he got to Romans 11 and he just couldn't get past the fact that over and over God kept saying, God's not done with Israel. Is God done with Israel? No. Is God done with Israel? No. Is God done with Israel? No. Three times in Romans 11, Paul asked that question, and three times he says, no, he's not done with the nation of Israel. And so he then started to realize that the Scripture was teaching that there there is going to be something in God's plan for the nation of Israel. And of course living in the days in which we do, it's an amazing thing now to see the nation itself even be in existence. You know, and all these prophecies and the Old Testament prophecies that talk about the very last days, how Israel is going to be in the land, which for 2000 years almost, it was impossible to even fathom. And then on top of that, there was going to be nations like Persia and Russia and all that coming after them. And nowadays we go, oh, maybe God was right. (laughs) But I want you to understand, though, that God told Abram way, way back. I'm not just choosing you and making the nation Israel come from you. And not only am I going to do my work through you and have the Messiah come through the nation of Israel, and not only in the last days am I going to bring glory to myself through the nation of Israel, but also because of your faith and those who will have faith, I'm going to make you a father of multitude of nations. The nations have been God's plan all along. We always see the um, Tower of Babel as a judgment of God when he scattered them and confused their languages. Don't we have kind of always kind of in the back of our mind seen that as a judgment? They were being punished. Actually, it's God fulfilling his plan. What did he told Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You get to chapter 10, they say we don't want to be scattered across the whole earth. Let's make a name for ourselves. And what does he do? He confused their languages so that they would have to go scatter. And the nations began as God had planned all along. All right? So at least this much we know, in the the eternal state, there's still going to be noticeable difference between the nations. And that brings glory to God. There's lots of reasons why, but one of them I'm going to just kind of touch on using Adam and Eve and all of creation. The Bible says that Adam and Eve were both created in the image of God, correct? Male and female, he created them both in the image of God. If we only look at men and ignore women, will we have a clear picture of who God is? No, because if women were created in the image of God, that means that attributes of God are are in them that we don't have, and vice versa. How many times have we seen in the Bible that Jesus would say things like, I wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers her her chicks, but you weren't willing. Or God the Father saying to the nation of Israel, I want to have you nurse at my breasts. You see, because women were created in the image of God, just like men were created in the image of God. And even though God's given us different roles, we cannot lose sight of the fact that when we try to go one way or the other, when people say, well, women's lib and we we don't need men, we're losing the image of God. When men are like, I'm in charge and the women just do whatever we say, we're losing the image of God. Actually, God brings glory to himself through his diversity of his creation, Actually, that's one of the things the Bible says. Look at all of it. Just try to go count the stars if you can. Try to go to the depths of the oceans if you could. Try to see if you, because God brings glory to himself through all the different things that he creates. And all the different nations are glory to God as well because they show his handiwork. You know, one of the saddest things is that we still want everything to be the same. Don't we? We want everybody to be like me or like you. You know what I'm saying? You see it in your kids. They want everything to be fair. They want everything to be the same. But does the Bible teach that everything will be the same? Does the Bible teach that everything's supposed to be the same? Think back to the parable of the soils, but we're not going to focus on the bad soils this time. Because whenever you hear some people teach on the parable of the soils, you never really hear them teach on the good soil very much. It's always like an afterthought. Oh, then, then there's the good soil. But think about what God said about the good soil. The seed fell on the good soil, and some produced a crop of 30, some 60, and some 100. Does the Bible act like the ones who produced 100 are better than the 30 or the 60? No. The parable of the talents, like you've heard me say before, he gave one five, another two, and another one, each according to his ability. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 and following, don't let yourself think of yourself more highly than you ought, but each with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that you've been given. God has said all along that there's going to be differences between us, and that's okay, because it brings glory to God. Because, as I've just touched on, the differences between man and woman Bring glory to God. For example, if you ask our kids, they've heard us say this over the years. <laughs> uh, Becky, I- I've told told our kids many a time, if, you know, if you didn't have your mama, you would have really missed out on a whole lot in this life. Because th- I have some really cool attributes, but we would have missed out a whole lot if it wasn't for Becky. There are things that we've gotten to experience in our family that would have never never experienced if it wasn't for Becky, who thought of the details and likes to plan. And I'm more of a fly-by-the-seat-of-the-pants kind of a guy. And if it happens, great. And if not, don't worry about it. But I thank God as we look back to all the things my kids have gotten to experience and travel and places we would have never been if my wife hadn't have said, we're going to go here. Yet at the same time, my wife will tell you that our kids would have missed out a whole lot if it was just her. You see, God makes us come together to bring glory to himself, and our differences is what makes us. But let me just kind of pry into your personal relationships a little bit. I bet you I can tell you what you and your spouse fight about. Most of your fights are because the other one doesn't do it how you would have done it. Right? Most often, the way we get into disputes over money or whatever it is is because you wouldn't do it the way you don't do it the way I would have done it. I was listening to a comedian today who was talking about how he and his wife in their first fight they ever had was over this carving a chicken. And she had asked him to carve a chicken and they were newlyweds. And he said, I don't know how to carve a chicken. She says, well, neither do I. You just carve the chicken. He said, can I have a nap? She says, as soon as you wake up, you need to carve the chicken. He said, fair deal. So he goes and he takes his nap and then she just happens to vacuum in the room right as soon as he falls asleep because now he's awake and it's time for him to cut the chicken because he said, as soon as I wake up, I'll carve the chicken. And so as he's grumbling and going to the chicken and to go to carve the chicken and and she had already told him, I don't know how to carve a chicken. He goes, well, I don't know how to carve a chicken. She said, well, that's your responsibility as the husband. He takes the knife and he starts to cut it. And she quickly, he said, there must have been a chicken cutting clasp somewhere between the bedroom and the kitchen because then she started telling me that's not how you do it. We want us all to be the same, and everybody has to see it like I see it. And folks, let me just tell you there are going to be differences for eternity, and they're going to bring glory to God. But not only will there be differences between the nations, what else do we see here in Revelation 21 21 through 27? There's going to be kings in the eternal state. Now, some of us say, I got no problem with there being kings in the millennial kingdom because, as you said, we're going to rule and reign with Jesus and he's going to reign from Jerusalem and David's going to be his prince and there's going to be the twelve apostles sitting on the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel and then there's going to be that Gentile branch of government and we're going to be given responsibility over cities and I understand that we're going to rule and reign during the millennium because there's going to still be sin and there's still going to be people that need to be judged and all that, but Why do we need kings? Why do we need authority in the eternal state? Well, before we answer that question, let me just show you that the Bible actually teaches and the scripture backs it up that authority has been ordained by God and it's for his glory. Go to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, look at verse 1. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So who ordained and designed authority? God. Go to John chapter 19. It gets even more clear. Go to John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. Pilate said to Jesus, will you not speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. What did Jesus say? The only authority you have has been given by God. God determines authority. We're not going to turn there, but if you go to Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, when Daniel is praising God because he gave him the vision of what the dream was and the interpretation, he said, you put kings in power and you remove them. God's in control. Oh, there's authority, but we've had this mindset that yeah, there's a need of authority here on the earth, and I can see a need of authority in the millennial kingdom, but when we get to the eternal state, when, we, when, when all the lost people are in the lake of fire, and Satan's in the lake of fire as well, and the only ones that are in the eternal state in the New Jerusalem are the believers, and we've been, we've been redeemed, why do we need kings? Why is there going to be authority? We kind of assu- assumed that that would just go all away. Any idea why? What's all. What's that? Definitely God's a God of order, but was before the world was even made, was there authority in heaven? Besides God himself, what do you, what do you know? The hierarchy of the angels. Remember, the angels existed before the creation of the world. The Bible's very clear about that. When God speaks to Job and says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth and the angels all worshiped? The angels existed before the creation of the world. And not only that, the Bible teaches us there are archangels, there are cherubim, there are seraphim. They all have different roles. Some are in charge of the rivers. Some are in charge of different things. Uh, We know that there are guardian angels, the Bible says, and all this kind of stuff. There were different levels of authority in heaven before even made the world. Does anybody have a better idea from Scripture as to why? Who are we going to rule over? I mean, if there's going to be kings... That means there have to be subjects. Who are we going to rule over? I heard it over here. The angels. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You didn't just remember it. God brought it to your remembrance. I'm telling you, folks, when the sooner we believe what Jesus said in John chapter 14 through 16, he said, when the Spirit comes, he will remind you. He'll bring to your remembrance everything that I've taught you. And those times when those th- those scriptures come to your mind, worship him. Lord, that was from you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look closely what it says here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 1 through 3. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Millennial Kingdom. And the world if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? There's going to come a point where we who have been created lower than the angels are going to be exalted over the angels, and we're going to judge and command the angels. We're going to rule over the angels. By the way, don't try to do it now. Don't try to do it now. The Bible's very clear about those false teachers who teach worship of angels and things like that. And, and how Michael the archangel wouldn't even bring accusation against Satan, but said the Lord rebuke you. So if Michael the archangel is not, not commanding Satan and rebuking Satan, we have to keep in mind where we are and what time, place we are in history. But one day we will rule over angels. Don't say one day I'm going to rule over angels, so I'm going to start doing it now. No, we're going to be learning about all this stuff when it's time and we're prepared. And just because you're going to be a king one day doesn't mean you're ready. David had been anointed as the king of Israel, but it was 15 years before he actually became king. Just because God said you're going to be king didn't mean that he was ready. You understand? Joseph was told your family is all going to bow down to you. Over 20 years later is when it finally happened. Even though God had said you're going to rule over your family... It didn't mean he was ready. I could go on. You hopefully understand. The Bible says one day we are going to rule over angels. But now keep in mind, I want you to see from Scripture that we have this awesome privilege that we're going to have. But it doesn't say that everybody's going to be a king, does it? According to this passage, kind of reads that there are some that are kings and some that aren't. I'll get to that in just a second. Let me show you one more passage though to help you understand that that we're going to be ruling with Christ for eternity. Go to Romans chapter 8. And look at verses 16 and 17. Romans chapter 8 verses 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Don't miss that. Provided we suffer with him that we may also be glorified with him. Go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, look at verses 11 and what we call 12a, the first half of verse 12. Verse 11 says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. The Bible actually teaches that, well, we've heard Jesus say it, haven't we? The first will be last. The last will be first. He says, When you go to a a party, don't choose the best seat. Take the lowest, because if you choose the best seat and someone more important than you shows up, it would be embarrassing for you to then say, hey, go back here to the end. But it would be much better if you were to choose the low seat and then someone come and say, no, you need to be brought up, you need more honor. The Bible says that we should seek to be servant of all. But you know one of the saddest things in Christianity today, especially as I travel and see many different churches, people are jockeying for position like you wouldn't believe. Mad because they weren't chosen to be deacon or didn't get picked to sing the special in, in, in the choir production or whatever it is. We all, because our flesh wants to elevate. The Bible says, "Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled." And we know that in the First Corinthians chapter three, verses six and following, when Paul says, "There's no other foundation which can be laid other than the one that has been laid, which is Christ Jesus." And we need to be all careful how we build on it because we need to build with either gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or stubble. And on the day of judgment, each one's work will be tested if what he has been built survives he'll be rewarded if he burns up he will suffer loss yet he himself will be saved but only as one escaping the flames does the bible kind of teach that that person's going to be a king for eternity hmm. you'll be in heaven by the grace of god but there's going to be differences between us for eternity we're not going to all be the same I'm going to chase a rabbit real quick. I think you can catch it, and that's why I'm going to chase it. But we're not going to chase it long, because I'm going to tell you right now, what I'm about to share with you is speculation. But every time I speculate, I only base it from Scripture, not well, I think. I'm going to base it on Scripture. But I believe that the Bible teaches and hints toward the fact that when we get our eternal bodies and when we live in the eternal state, for sure, maybe even while we're on the earth in the millennial kingdom, there will be a difference between us in our physical bodies and what they're able to do and their glory. Whenever you do a study of glory to be revealed, you'll see that in many places, the context is our bodies. Paul, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, dealing with what kind of a body are we going to get when we're resurrected, said, he doesn't know, but he knows this much. The seed that you put in the ground and the body that the seed has, what comes out is a different type of body. And then he goes on and says, one star differs in glory from another. So it will be with our bodies. Think back to the garden. The Bible says that when Adam and Eve were created, before they sinned, they were naked, but they felt no shame. It's almost like they didn't even realize they were naked. As a teenage boy, that always gave me a, Confusion Especially as a young, lustful teenage boy, I remember thinking, "How in the world could you ever be by a naked girl and not know she's naked?" Until I let the scripture begin to help me see some things, I believe without question, that Adam and Eve had a glory, that their bodies glowed like God's. They were created in His image, and you know God's body glows, the Shekinah glory that goes with him. What happened to Moses when he just spent 40 days in the presence of God, being taught by God on the mountain? He didn't even have a resurrected body, but his glory, the glory of God, did something to his physical body to the point that he came down from the mountain and everybody was freaked out because he was a reflective glory, but he was glowing just a little bit in his face from being in the presence of God. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus, his glory that was in him began to shine through. And everything turned white, and they were just amazed at what they saw. I think the reason why Adam and Eve were naked but felt no shame, but all of a sudden realized they were naked, is I believe when they sinned, they lost that glory. The Bible talks about a glory to be revealed. And when the Scripture talks about one star's difference from another in glory, and Paul's talking about the bodies to be revealed, I think that there may be a difference between the glory of the people for eternity and you'll be able to tell those who had been faithful on the earth by how much they shine compared to others as long as well as their responsibilities for eternity. Folks, I believe the Bible teaches that for eternity we're going to be creating. We're gonna, I think we're going to have jobs in the garden which you're going to see tonight that we're going to be going back to a state like that in the garden minus Satan, thank the Lord. In the garden, God may had Adam go to work in the garden and work the garden before sin. Work didn't come about because of sin. The earth fighting him came about because of sin. I believe we're going to have jobs, responsibilities, roles. We're all going to have different responsibilities, and I think we're going to love it. We hear the word work now, and we think, oh, work, huh? Actually, I can look you in the eye and tell you, I have a job, but I don't feel like it's a job. I love what I do. If you even knew my schedule, you'd think, how does anybody do that? It's fun. His yoke is easy, his burden is light because it's what he has for me to do and I'm letting him do it through me and I love what I do. Whenever I travel and people find out that I'll be in a certain area on vacation, they'll say, hey Jim, do you mind preaching? And and I'm like, I'd love to. And they say, well, you don't mind working on your vacation? Preaching's not work, it's fun. I think for eternity we're gonna love what we do. but We're all gonna have different responsibilities and that's why I wanna challenge you tonight to be faithful I want to be, will you be faithful to whatever it is that God has for you to do, whether it's 30 or 60 or 100 fold, you'll be rewarded one day. The Bible does say, store up treasure in heaven. That means that there'll be some that don't have as much treasure in heaven, correct? There'll be differences for eternity. Don't have this weird false misconception that everything's going to be equal at that point. Everybody will be the same, and it'll all be the same. Oh, and by the way, as we stop chasing the rabbit on glory and shining, go with me real quick to one more verse. I want to share it to you. Go to Daniel chapter 12. As I shared with you last week, I think we might be able to fly. Some of you might not. Yeah, you won't want to fly now, but trust me, at that time you won't be afraid of it. Fear will be gone. Look at Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I think you're going to glow. I think you're going to have a glory. And I think that there's going to be a difference in glory between people. We'll stop chasing that, that rabbit for now. But like I said, Scripture seems to point in that direction. Look at verse 27 then. So we've been looking at all this cool stuff about the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. Verse 27 says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, meaning the new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Why is verse 27 even necessary? i I'm sorry? Well, yeah, but this this isn't even heaven that we know of. The heaven that exists now is not this. This is the new heaven and the new earth is going to be created after the millennial kingdom, after everything we see is destroyed. This hasn't been made yet. Why is verse 27 necessary? Because at the time, John sees the new heaven and the new earth, which, as you know, hasn't been made yet. It's going to come down and going to be created and all that. But at the time that that happens, all of the unrighteous are going to be where? In the lake of fire forever and ever. Why is it necessary then, if everybody's already in the lake of fire, to say these types of people will never be able to get into that city? Well, duh. Exactly. You're about to see as we get to chapter 22, the rest of the book of Revelation is some more peaks at what is to come to excite you about what God has in store for us. And at the same time, it's a warning and an offer of salvation. You're going to see it. And that's what our attitude needs to be. Lord, come quickly. We want you to come. Yet, at the same time, if we're still here, it's because God is still offering salvation. The reason this is worded this way is to say, well, it's kind of like those TV commercials. Act now. There's only so many left, you know. Have you ever seen the little timer on the, on the, on the commercial? Act before the 12 seconds are over or whatever it is, or 12 minutes. God's saying, if you're still one of these people, you'll never get to be in there, and I want you in there. Get it fixed. Get it fixed. Let's go to chapter 22. I'm going to read to you verses 1-9. through We won't get all of this covered tonight, but we'll get hopefully most of it to get us ready to finish next week. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book." I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Look closely at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 22, and then go back and look at the passage we read at the beginning of the study, verses 21, chapter 21, verses 21 through 27, and you'll notice they're almost identical. In chapter 22, even though we've already read in chapter 21, verses 21 through 27, that there's streets of gold in the city, there's no temple because the Lamb's there, and His light makes it no need of a sun and all that, and no one unclean is going to enter it. Chapter 22 is almost word for word. What well, we just read at the end of the last chapter. Look at chapter 22. Angels showed be the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street, which we'd already just seen. Also neither side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, like we just saw, in it. But the throne of God of the Lamb will be in it, which we just saw. His servants will worship him. They'll see his face and his name be on their foreheads and there won't be any night anymore, which we just saw. And there's no need of a lamp or a sun for the Lord will be their light and they will reign forever. Almost word for word of what we just read in the previous verses. But what's been added? The tree of life and and the river. Again, I want you to see this as we finish tonight and finish next week. Chapter 22 is just little glimpses of what is to come and offers of salvation. In chapter 22 here, in verses 1 through 5, he repeats what we've already seen, but he wants you to see it again. Jesus himself is going to be there. God the Father is going to be there. The Holy Spirit is going to be there. The glory is going to be just showing, and, and they don't need a sun or a moon. There's no night. Their glory is just going to light things, and it's going to be awesome. And on top of that, we've seen a street of gold. Keep that in mind because that's going to be important later on. The, the streets of gold. And then now we see that in the middle of that street of gold, is going to be a river flowing from the throne of God. And is the tree of life. So what I want, want to do, go to Psalm 46. Go to Psalm 46. Let's, let's do this first. One of the awesome things about prophecy here. Look at Psalm 46 and you'll see what I'm talking about. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains tremble at its swelling. By the way, when's that going to happen? At the end of the tribulation period. Remember, at the end of the tribulation period, the mountains all fall into the sea, and the islands disappear, and the oceans roar. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in, her, in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Here in the midst of it, as he's talking about all the trouble that's going to come during the tribulation period, gives us a little glimpse of the new heaven and the new earth. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Go to verse 6, "'The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters His voice, and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth.'" How he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Folks, let me just say real quickly, what the psalmists are saying here is simply this. As we see the chaos erupt on the globe, relax, be still, know that God exists. Oh, by the way, he give you a little glimpse and a little picture of what's to come. There's a river in a city where God dwells. Now, Revelation... Makes it more clear what that was talking about. I hope you've seen this in this whole study. How the book of Revelation is not a new book, but all it is is compiling the Old Testament. You're going to see as we end tonight, in the time we have left, I'm going to show you that Jesus himself said that everything written about him in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All Revelation does is put it together for us. Go ahead. My my question is, because I've been asked, the tree of life was never destroyed Mm -hmm. in the Old Testament. You don't see it Right. Where was it? Hidden from us? God can put it wherever He wants. He might have Uncle Bob's storage or something. I don't know. But but we don't. the Bible doesn't tell us, so the answer is we don't know. But you will see that it has always existed, and it will exist. But we're going to actually touch on that real quick. Actually, I think we'll answer your question in a little bit with that. I'm going to come back to the river. Go ahead. You have a question? Mm-hmm. Go for it. hmm Think about this now. What we think is so treasured is pavement. It's pavement in heaven. It's asphalt. Isn't that cool? The stuff that we thought was so prized is asphalt. And plus, all these things are glorious. They're beautiful. God made them. Yeah. Yeah. Well... It is something that people desire, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with desiring things, but it's anything that God blesses us with can become too much of an idol. You know, Let's be honest. Is food a good thing? Who created food? Can you desire food too much? Is the sexual relation between a man and a woman a good thing? Yes. Who created it? God did. Can it become desired too much? Yes. Everything can become that. But I look at the fact that what we think is so awesome is pavement. That's going to be pretty cool. All right. Now let me. We we need to. We need to get a good question though. I'm just going to remind you of a couple of things because there's so much I want to get into tonight, so that we can finish next week. Back in the garden, the tree of life is also seen again. We'll come back to the river in a second. Back in the garden, the tree of life was available to Adam and Eve, but they chose to eat from the tree that God had said not to eat from. And we're not going to go there. But back in Genesis chapter two, verses eight through seventeen, God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and he gives. He said, "All these trees are available for food, and the tree of life was there." And he said, the only tree you're not to eat from is this tree of knowledge of good and evil. As you all hopefully know, they ate from the tree they weren't supposed to eat from. Now, for years, I thought they never ate from the tree of life. But I think they could have. And I'll show you in a second why. But once there comes a point, once they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and now they're removed from the garden, go real quick to Genesis chapter 3 and look at verses 22 through 24. Like I said, for years, I thought that they never ate from the tree of life. And they had their chance because if they ate once, they're going to be you know, able to live forever. Because God says something here in Genesis 3 that made me think that for years. But I'm going to show you that I think what God's showing us in Revelation actually makes us realize that he wasn't saying that. In Genesis 3, verses 22 through 24, "...then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil." Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and, eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent, out, sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So now the tree of life still existed in the garden prior to the flood, of course. And, but he put an angel there with a flaming sword who now made it so the man couldn't get back to that tree. In other words, the tree still exists but the only way you get there is on God's terms. Don't miss that. The tree still exists, but the only way you get there is on God's terms, okay? Man can't just do it on his own. Now, now we see though that in the New Jerusalem, the tree of life is there in the center of the city, and it's available for everyone to eat from. Now, has anybody noticed which side of the river is it on? It's on both sides. It's almost like I picture one of those old redwoods, you know? where they're so big that you can drive a car through them and whatever. And, and as I was just kind of praying over that, I was like, Lord, why is it on both sides of the river? And then it kind of hit me. You don't have to cross the river to get there. It don't matter which side of the river you're on, you can eat of the tree of life. It's not like, well, it's over on our side versus your side. It's on both sides. Now, again, we don't know much about this, but we can tell you this much. The Bible shows that there's going to be time in heaven because the, the tree produces its fruit every month. That doesn't mean that it's going to be measured like we do with 24-hour days because we don't have a sun and a moon like they're going to, I mean, they won't be then like we do now. There is going to be time in heaven, some measurement of time for eternity, but we don't know what it will be. Just leave it at that. But it also has 12 different types of fruit. Now, some people speculate that one month it produces one type of fruit. The next month it produces another, another type. We don't know. It could just be one tree that has 12 different types of fruit on it all at once. And every month it produces all 12. We don't know how it all works out. All we know is, this is an amazing tree. Has 12 different types of fruit, and maybe there are going to be 12 months in heaven. Because there's 12 different types of fruit, and if it is fruit each month, we don't know. But there's going to be time in heaven. But then there's this question about the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. You don't have to answer this question, because I'm going to answer it for you. But my thought was, and I'll throw it out to you, why is that necessary? Why in the new, new heaven and new earth, in the eternal state, when there's not going to be any more sickness, any more death? No more crying. The Bible said very, very clear that that's all going to go away. Why are the leaves necessary for the healing of the nations if there's no more sickness? I think that actually gives us a glimpse to where I think God wants us to go here tonight. I believe these things are literal. They're going to be real things, but they're also symbolic at the same time. What does the river represent, folks? The Holy Spirit and salvation. Go with me real quick to John chapter seven. John chapter seven. Look at verses thirty-seven through forty-one. John seven thirty-seven through forty-one. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The the rivers of living water, by the way, I love the picture of it being a river. That means it's continually flowing. Now I'm just going to tell you, I personally can't wait to see this river and get in it. The Bible says it's crystal clear. The Bible actually says in the millennial kingdom from the throne in the millennial kingdom, the river's gonna flow and it's gonna get deeper and deeper and turn the Dead Sea fresh. I can't wait to jump in it. But my reason might not be what we think. I personally love when I get to travel, going to the northern states, where I can jump in some of those clear ponds and rivers and not have to worry about gators. Because down here... Personally, I'm not an ocean person. We live four blocks from the ocean where our house is, and my kids love the beach, and that's great. But whenever I go to the beach, even though I jump in the water, I feel salty and sticky, and I can't wait to get back in my pool and kind of rinse off. But I'd rather, personally, I like fresh water better than salt water. But down here, whenever you swim in the fresh water, you're doing this and checking for gators. Up, And I get up north. I'm actually going to be in Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire this summer. Been to be like the eighth time I've preached at this conference center. Alton Bay, Lake Winnipesaukee is such a beautiful, beautiful, clear, big, deep. I mean, we're talking deep, deep lake that's formed by the mountains that have just the rain just filling it up. And it's so clear out there. You can see almost to the bottom. And while I'm out there swimming, I just drink. But what I love to do is to go get in the lake at dusk and lay on my back and watch the sky turn to stars. By the way, you can't do that down here because that's when the gators come out. (laughs) But I think that the Bible's showing us that there's going to be the river which represents the Holy Spirit and salvation. What does the tree of life represent? Salvation. If anybody's hungry, let them come to me and eat. Salvation. What do the leaves represent? The healing of the nations, the Bible says. Folks, listen to me for a second. I don't think it's an accident that in the eternal state, there's going to be a river there that we can drink from continually, that there's going to be a tree that we will eat from continually. This is why I think in the garden, Adam and Eve ate of the tree of life. They stopped when they chose to sin, and they were kept from it now. But we're going to eat of it for eternity. What's the need of it? Producing fruit every month, unless we're going to be eating the fruit. Why do we need the healing? It's not because we're sick, but it's because for some reason, for some way, God has designed it that we will forever be being reminded that we are there because of him. Many of us have this mindset of thinking, one day I'm going to get there, and I can't wait until I get there, and then I can say, I've made it. I think God has designed the eternal state to be a continual reminder. The river of living water, keep drinking. The tree of life, keep eating. The leaves that bring healing, it's me, not you. And for eternity, I will continue to say, I'm so glad to be here and it's because of you. And he's given us that awesome reminder. I want you to understand, well, what does it say in the book of Ephesians? Ephesians chapter five, We're not going to turn there, I'm just going to just kind of quote it to you. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, the scripture says, Do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now actually in the Greek it should be, if we were to put it exactly, it would say, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a command of God. I'm going to ask you a question you know the answer to, but I want you to answer it so it will help you understand where I'm going. Are you saved or are you being saved? You're saved and you're being saved. You are saved and being saved for eternity. Because in him we live and move and have our being. Will we get to heaven and not need Jesus anymore? He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Is that going to change when we get to the eternal state? No. It's going to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. Folks, in heaven, there'll be a continual reminder of our need of him. The good news is there'll be no flesh, no world, no Satan pulling us away from that. We will live in a continual state of worship and getting to know him more. And he'll get bigger and bigger in our eyes. I love how when uh, C.S. Lewis writes his books that are pictures of what heaven are going to be like, and when they get to that place that's kind of like heaven, the further in they go, the bigger it gets. The further in they go, the bigger it gets. I think it's going to be like that for eternity. Is that why Jesus still has the scars and wounds? Without question, he's going to have them for eternity. We're going to be forever, forever worshiping him for what he's done. Now, what I want to do in the time we have left is take you to verses 6 and 7. We'll just deal with verses 6 and 7, and we'll pick up there at the end of that next week. But I don't want you to miss verses 6 and 7. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Look closely at verses 6 and 7. We need to take them literally. I'm going to remind you we're not going to take the time to turn there because of time that in the beginning of our study, we knew from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Revelation 1, Revelation 4, 1, and now we also see here in verse 6 that these things must take place. Place. Remember that? You see that word there? Underline it. Underline that word must. We saw in Revelation 1, verses 1 through 3, Revelation 1, 19, Revelation 4, 1, and here in Revelation chapter 22, verse 6. Four times in the Bible, the Bible says these things must take place. The book of Revelation is not symbolic, the book of Revelation is literal. It has symbolism, but it always explains what the symbolism is. Take it literally. It's going to happen. If the Bible says these things must take place, and it's the exact same word when the Bible says you must be born again, and there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, we understand must mean must, On those other ones, right? If these things must take place, all this is going to happen. All of it's going to happen. So the tree of life is not symbolic. It's a literal tree. It's going to happen. Now, on the same time, though, look at how God describes himself. This just jumped off the page at me. And I've been studying the book of Revelation for years. I've never seen this before. Look at how God describes himself in verse 6. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets. God, the, the Lord God of the spirits, plural, of the Prophets. What I want you to see, and what we've been trying to help you to understand throughout this whole study, is that the book of Revelation, if you knew the Old Testament and the, the prophets and the law and the prophets and the Psalms, and you knew what they were and you, they were in your heart, if you read the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation would have been confusing to anybody. It would have made a ton of sense because all Revelation does is compile it. So I want you to see something. I want you to go with me to Luke 24. In Luke 24, as you're turning there, we're going to look at verses 25-27 through 27 to start with. Let me set the stage, this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. These are two men on the road to Emmaus, one of them is named Cleopas. Uh, they were with the group, they had heard that Mary and the women had said that they had seen Jesus and that He had risen from the dead. They had heard that Peter and John had raced to the tomb and had found it empty. They weren't real sure, they were discouraged, and as you know they started heading back to Emmaus. Of course, as you hopefully know, Jesus shows up and reveals Himself to them eventually. But look at verses 25-27. through Jesus said to them, "'O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself.'" There's a lot of Bible studies that aren't described in detail. We know Peter preached for three hours at one time, and Eutychus fell out the window. And we've seen lots of different teachings that are mentioned, but we don't have what was taught. I think if I had to choose one Bible study to sit in on, that's the one I want. The one where Jesus, on that seven-mile walk, took all the scriptures concerning himself and opened their eyes to them. But now go with me to verses 44 through 49. 49. As you know, he he goes to the house. They invite him in. As he breaks the bread, they recognize him, and he disappears. They're so excited. They run back the seven miles to Jerusalem. They show up in the upper room, and they're telling him, hey, we've seen him too. And, of course, Jesus shows up. He appears to them. But look at verses 44 through 49. Then Jesus, he's speaking to the big group now in the upper room. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, must be fulfilled. Well, didn't we read tonight just one place that there's a river in the city of God where he dwells? That means it's going to happen. If everything written about him in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you're witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Look closely. He said, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. All right? Go with me to Acts. That's Luke 24. Go to Acts chapter one. Start in verse one, Acts chapter one, verse one. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up and after he had been given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Okay, so he's already opened their minds to help them understand the scriptures. He said everything written about me must be fulfilled He now, in those 40 days before he ascended, taught about the kingdom of God. And in verse 6, what do they say? When they came together, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Folks, if Jesus said everything written about him in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and then he taught them for 40 days about the kingdom of God, and they came out of that time saying, Is it going to happen now? It must be literal. There is going to be a restoring of the kingdom to Israel. It can't be symbolic. You want one more proof? Go to Acts chapter um, 3. Go to Acts chapter 3. Look at verses 17 through 21. Peter's preaching and he says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago." By the way, why were the Jews expecting the Messiah when he came the first time to set up his kingdom on the earth and to rule and reign from Jerusalem? Because the prophets had prophesied that it's going to happen. That there was going to be a kingdom in Israel. And the Bible here clearly says, after they had their eyes opened, and after he taught about the kingdom, full of the Spirit, Peter preached and said, Jesus is only in heaven right now until the restoring of all things that the prophets had said were going to happen. Folks, if you get anything out of this Revelation study, these things are going to take place. And God, the Lord God of the spirits of the prophets has come to let his servants know what is soon going to take place. And then he says this, which he said to us at the very beginning of the book, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is he who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. The question then is, how do we keep the words of the prophecy of the book? It's kind of important that we know that, isn't it? That's next week. We'll see you then.